introduction. Our world is divided. Whether it's politics, morality, worldview, or race, it seems that there is more disunity than ever. These disagreements, lack of trust, uh, these disagreements uh, create, I'm sorry, let me say that again, these divisions create disagreements, lack of trust, and a breakdown of relationships in general. We live in a divided world. And so in such a world as this, it comes as great news that Christ is our great unifier. For despite the different factions that we see in the world around us, we are reminded in Scripture that Christ is the head of the church, a glorious community that goes beyond just one congregation or building, but includes all believers everywhere in the world. And it's this community, this institution, that brings together people of all different races, nationalities, political affiliations, age groups, gender, skill sets, and much more. Any kind of way you could think to divide us into different subcategories, the cool thing about the church is that it brings all these people together into one body. And it's a body that doesn't bear the unique or exclusive characteristics of any one of those groups. It bears them all. So, we are reminded that no matter what our background is, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we all share this in common, that we have been bought bought by His blood, transformed into new creations, and adopted into the family of God. And that's an important truth to remember in such a day as this, especially as you see the world divided in so many different ways, especially if you turn on the news or just browse some of the articles online, you see it's a very divided era. And I know there have always been periods of time. I'm not going to pretend that this is the most divided era or that it's somehow worse than all that came before it. It's easy for each generation to say that. But what we can say at least is that it is a very divided time that we live in. And so I feel it's a very timely message to be reminded of the fact that Christ is our great unifier. And not only is that a comforting thought, it also should transform the way that we act toward one another, not just toward those of us who are a part of this congregation, but toward those who are in any congregation, any state, any country, all who name the name of Christ. So you'll see here, oh, my, my notes are all jumbled up. That doesn't help. Here we go. Tonight, I'd like us to take a look at this passage that talks about Christ's role as the one who unifies and reconciles us. As I already said, Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 is our passage. And in this particular text, it will specifically mention how Jews and Gentiles have been brought together. But I think we can apply that in many other ways as well. We don't often easily relate to that kind of problem that existed back then between Jew and Gentile. Those aren't the categories that we often think about, right? It's not the, the war that we face today. It was in Paul's day, and we're going to see how he unpacks that, but we're also going to see how it goes beyond just that specific category and tells us something about the kind of unity we should have together as well, no matter what kinds of divisions we find today. So let's read this text together. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 18. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the uncircumcision, you that were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise 
having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So let's look at the background, Paul's audience here. As we read this, it's apparent from the text that the Ephesian church was comprised both of Jewish and Gentile converts. And here in this passage, Paul speaks directly to the Gentile portion of his audience. So you see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh and, uh, in the flesh by hands. Similarly, in Ephesians 3, 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So, in both cases, it seems that Paul is specifically addressing the Gentile group within the church. But, of course, it's comprised of both Jew and Gentile. Keep in mind that most, if not all of us in this room, would fall into this category of Gentiles. So, what Paul says here applies to us. Keep in mind that Christianity started out as a Jewish religion. Jesus was Jewish, of course. He was the promised Jewish Messiah. And his ministry was primarily concentrated to the Jewish people. So in the years that followed Jesus' earthly ministry, the church grew outward. And eventually, this body of believers, which started out as primarily Jewish, not entirely, but mostly, grew and grew and expanded to the Gentile regions of the world, and it became more and more mixed. No longer just a Jewish religion, but now incorporating those around them as they became converts, and it became more and more of a mixed body. Now we find, of course, in our day and age, where we happen to live, we're mostly Gentile, right? It's expanded to such a degree that we, we don't have that even mix that might have existed back in that day, or even the dominant portion of maybe a Jewish population. But here, that's what's going on. And Ephesus was not primarily in a Jewish area like Palestine, but it was in modern-day Turkey. So at this point, the gospel had already spread out a great deal. And um, it would make sense if Paul's audience in Ephesus was primarily Gentile. We don't know, but it would seem that way because he's addressing them specifically here. Now, as I've already alluded to, the, the, the term Gentile simply referred to anybody who was not part of the Jewish people group. And this is a term found in the New Testament, although it's rooted in ideas of the Old Testament. In the OT, the, the Old Testament, there is this distinction that's made between the people of Israel and the other nations, called goy, you see in Hebrew, or goyim, plural, for the nations or people. And so, as we consider how these two groups of people would have uh, related to each other in Paul's day, let's first start with what the Old Testament said about how the Jewish people were to relate to the nations around them. And this is ultimately going to tie in and have relevance for the thing that Paul's dealing with here. So, how were the nations of Israel supposed to relate to the other peoples around her? Well, the answer is in two parts. Answer number one, be separate from them. 
Okay? So the first is the way that Israel was supposed to relate to those around them was to be separate and distinct. For example, and this is not on your paper, I don't believe, but Joshua 24.11, Israel was commanded to drive them out completely, to destroy those people from the land. Why? Because their religion was different from that of the Jewish people, and if they had been allowed to mix together with them, God knew that they would start to uh, fall into idolatry, start to abandon Yahweh, the God of Israel, and start to worship other gods. And God was right. Anytime they disobeyed this law, that's exactly what happened. Genesis 12, 1-7, God made a covenant specifically with his people in a way that was separate from all other nations. And so in the law of Moses, the Israelites were commanded to be separate from them. God did not want them to adopt the religious practices of the people around them. So you see Deuteronomy 7, verses 1-4. through 4. And it says, When the Lord God brings you into the land, you are entering to take possession of it, and he clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I had an LBC professor said, and the Mosquito Bites, but it's not there. Seven, seven, that's another translation. Seven uh, nations more numerous and mightier than you. When the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them complete, to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them or show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to your sons or to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So the Israelites weren't to intermarry with people around them. And this is not some sort of you know, divinely sanctioned racism in any way to say that the Jewish people were somehow better than anybody else. In fact, we'll find later on that they, they're no better than any other nations. There's, God makes that very clear. You're not better. There's no reason why I should have shown my love to you except that God chose them. For reasons known un, un, only to himself, God chose them. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see what's happening here is a model, a picture of election, which is described later on in the book of Romans and others, where God chose us, not because we loved him first, and we talked about this this morning, but because he chose for his own reasons to set his love upon us, not based on our works or anything. That's the whole concept of election. God could have chosen any nation he wanted, but for his own reasons, out of his own love and mercy, he chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. So God's people were to remain separate and distinct from the nations around them. Now, when Israel ignored this warning, we already said they fell into idolatry. But that's not the whole story. We see answer to how they were supposed to relate they were supposed to be separate from them, but they were also to remember that they were blessed to be a blessing. For in Genesis 12, 3, uh, it says this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, here's the key, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These were the words God spoke to Abraham. And you might remember Pastor Reed did an entire series on this, blessed to be a blessing. Okay? But God's intention from the beginning was never just to bless Israel and to stop there, or just to have them keep that blessing to themselves. For that was the wrong way of thinking. 
And it was the wrong way of thinking that Jonah had. If you remember the book of Jonah, what, what happens in that book, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, not because he's scared of what they're going to do to him, but he's scared they're actually going to repent and turn, and God's going to save them. That's the reason he doesn't want to go. And so many children's books get that wrong. You know, you'll, you'll read that, and it's, they say it's because Jonah was scared. It wasn't that. It's because he didn't like the idea of God saving another nation. And he missed this, entirely, this entire point given to Abraham. But we could point to many examples, and some of which I've given you here on your paper, of people who God extended mercy to who are not part of Israel. So we have the city of Nineveh. We already talked about that. But you also have Ruth, who was a Moabite or Moabitess, I guess you could say. Rahab, a Canaanite. And Naaman, a Syrian. And Pastor Cruz just talked about Naaman last week in 2 Kings 5. And note, even though that Ruth and Rahab were, for, uh, were from foreign nations, both were welcomed into the nation of Israel through their faith in God. Again, just like we said this morning, it was their faith that justified them. So, in summary, we could say that God's people were to stay separate from these pagan nations, and yet God was uh, intending to be merciful, and that mercy was intended to extend to peoples from all tribes and all nations. And you can see that the nation of Israel often swayed you know, one direction or the other, and both extremes were wrong. When they were too cozy with the nations around them, they fell into idolatry and learned their practices. When they you know, stepped away from the nations entirely, looked down upon them, they missed the point of why God had blessed them in the first place. So that's the, the, the background in the Old Testament. Let's fast forward a bit in the Old Testament timeline. Prelude to the time of Jesus. Hostility grows. So from here, the nation splits into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and a pagan nation conquers them both. God causes Babylon, under the command of Nebuchadnezzar, to rise up and send both Israel and Judah into exile. And as a result of that important event, the Jewish people came under Gentile control, This continued under the reign of the Medes and the Persians. We read about this in Daniel, Ezra, and Esther. And then between the Old and New Testaments, the Jewish people came under the control of the Greeks, and they were finally controlled by the Romans. And this is where we find the New Testament picking up. We have that 400 years of silence where it doesn't really describe what happens in the Bible, but we know from other sources of history what happened. But the point I want you to see is that there was this 600-year rule of subjugation by the Gentiles um, against the Jewish people. They were under pagan rule for 600 years. If we take um, the time of the exile to be about 586 B.C. So you can understand, maybe, why at the time of Christ, many, Gen- I'm sorry, many Jewish people had a great hatred, not only for the Roman nation, but also for the Gentile peoples that filled their empire. This is the background in the passage of Ephesians. Long history of conflict that resulted in this tremendous separation. So let's listen to what uh, William Barclay writes about this. This is a good summary. He says, The Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. They said that Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell, and that God loved only Israel of the nations that he had made. The best of the serpents crush, they said, the best of the Gentiles kill. It was not even lawful to give help to a Gentile woman at childbirth. 
for that would be bringing another Gentile into the world. The barrier between Jews and Gentiles was absolute. If a Jew married a Gentile, the funeral of that Jew was carried out as a ceremony, you could think. And uh, such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Even going into the house of a Gentile made a Jew unclean. So as you can tell, this is quite harsh. And also going well beyond what the Bible says about how Jews and Gentiles were to to relate to each other. But as we read those two terms, what I want to impress upon you is that this is the background of the passage that we have before us. This is the attitude that these groups had toward each other, specifically that the Jewish people had towards the Gentile people. And there were these years and years of bad history separating them. So go back to Ephesians 2.11. It says, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh in the flesh by hands. Okay, That's Paul saying, this is, remember how you were viewed by the Jewish people. Remember how you were alienated from God's people in times past. Remember how you were called uncircumcision by those people in a derogatory way. You can tell Paul doesn't agree with this way that the Jewish people treated the Gentiles because he adds, which is made in the flesh by hands. That's almost a way of saying, you know, circumcision says nothing about where one's heart is. It's not a spiritual mark. It's only something done on the outside. In other words, Paul is speaking out against this way that people describe the Gentiles. But nevertheless, he says to the Gentile audience, you remember what that's like, don't you? And they certainly did. And at the time of Jesus, there was this prominent sign that warned the Gentiles about entering certain portions of the temple. When Herod completed the the second temple around 10 BC, he created this outer court for the Gentiles. And if they tried to venture in further, they would encounter some words. And you'll see that on your handout. There's an image of what that stone would have looked like in Latin and in Greek. And it says in English, if we translate it, no foreigner is to go beyond the barrier and enclosure that surrounds the temple. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. So now if you flip over and you see the the model of the temple there, you can see that there is a court of the Gentiles, if you can read that text, okay? And, And it's certainly there, it's big, but it's also not anywhere close to the center of the temple. And so if you tried to venture in further, there would be several inscriptions, like the one we just saw that says, if you come any further, we will not be held responsible for your death. So you can imagine how it might feel to be a Gentile in a Jewish world. Um, Aside from this cultural separation that existed, there was also a very real sense in which the Gentiles were separated from God. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, Remember that you, you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. So in addition to this alienation from the Jewish people, they were also alienated from God in a very real sense. And this is not a matter of prejudice, it's just a matter of fact. He's saying, no, you really are separated from the promises. Without the Holy Scriptures, you don't have access to the promises of God. You don't have access to this community of God's people. Yes, they were separated culturally, but he's saying beyond that, you don't have a community of believers because you're separated from them. You're not unified. They couldn't look forward to the coming Messiah um, or place their hope in God's promise to one day bring justice and restoration to this world. They knew none of that. That was the state of the Gentiles. So, here's the summary of it all. Without a relationship to the true God, 
The Gentile peoples had no hope at all. And to make things worse, they were alienated from the people of God. There already was this barrier between them, but the Jewish people made that divide even worse. Many Jewish people did not seek to win Gentiles for Yahweh. And that seems to be the natural tendency of humanity, isn't it? We're great as, at building divisions and, and creating cliques and separating us into different groups, aren't we? It seems to be part of our sinful nature, that we do that naturally. If we're going to have any kind of opposite reaction to bring groups together, it seems that it would have to be a work of Christ. And that's what you see here on your paper. However, this is where Jesus Christ entered the picture and changed everything. So the work of Christ, reconciliation. But now, Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So you see, one thing is clear as we read these verses. Left to our own, we walk away from God and from others. On our own, we create alienation, and we ourselves are alienated. So if we're to be brought back together, it has to be entirely the work of Jesus Christ. And you see in these verses that it is Christ who has done all of these things in this passage. Jesus Christ has, number one, brought us together. Number two, brought us near to God. Number three, broken down that wall of hostility and established peace between all parties. And number four, made us both into one body. All of that is the work of Christ. He doesn't say that you've gone ahead and, and brought unity to one, from one group to the other. The Jewish people have. It's all the work of Christ. And notice that even though he starts by talking to Gentiles, nevertheless, Paul does not therefore present the Jews as somehow more virtuous or as the one who have made this problem right. For in fact, Paul would later go on to say that the Jews are no better. In Romans 3, 9 and 10, it says, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No, in fact, Paul groups the Jews together with the Gentiles here in Ephesians. So in essence, the separation between Gentile and Jew is just as much of a Jewish problem as it is a Gentile problem. For verse 14, he says, For he, Christ himself, is our peace. Not just the Gentile peace, but our peace. Ephesians 2.16, And might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, therefore killing the hostility. Again, Paul includes his own Jewish people in this problem by saying that Christ has reconciled us both through the cross. How does he accomplish this? Verse 15 says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That doesn't mean that Jesus did away with the law. Of course, you know that as if the law were somehow inherently bad. For remember, Jesus said in Matthew 5, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in fact, this verse tells us exactly what he did. He abolished the law in the sense that he fulfilled it. You see, the Jews continually tried to keep the law, and the Gentiles did not. 
And that was the huge difference between them. But Jesus came and fulfilled the law so that both Jew and Gentile could come to him by faith without having to perfectly keep the law. This is the wall that he broke down between them. And thus, that's why many think that when Jesus died on the cross, and Matthew 27 tells us that the temple curtain was torn in two at the moment of his death, that that curtain was the divider between the inner court and the Holy of Holies. You know, the, the, the curtain that separated us from true access to God. And many would also go a step farther in saying that that also represented the tearing down of this barrier between Jew and Gentile, that we all now have access to the Father. And so as a result of Christ's work, both Jew and Gentile are now on the same level. Ephesians 2.17, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through Jesus' death, the gospel is now proclaimed both to the Jewish people and also to the Gentile peoples of the world. And we all have access to the Father. That's, that's amazing. That should strike us as particularly wonderful for us being a Gentile audience, I would say tonight. And maybe there might be some exceptions, but I'd say by and large we are a Gentile audience And so as we think about application, what can we learn from this passage or how are we to respond in light of these truths, our first application is to be thankful. Be thankful and remember that at one time, you Gentiles, all of us, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by, uh, in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world. So as Gentiles, we're not originally supposed to be a part of God's people at all. And the fact that we are saved at all and in this room tonight and worshiping and able to have a relationship with God is a testimony to God's grace in our lives. We are so far removed from this Jew and Gentile situation in the New Testament that we often forget that we were originally not a part of God's chosen people when he originally chose the Jews in the first place. We have been grafted in, as Romans 11 tells us. We tend to think of America as being the Christian center of the world, but we're not. We're not. We're latecomers to the kingdom of God. And we can be thankful that God extended his grace far beyond Palestine and for reasons only known to himself has chosen to include us in the kingdom. That should bring us a level of humility, and it also should lead us to be thankful. Application two. Our common bond with Christ trumps all other bonds. So the second thing I think we should take away from this passage is that uh, Christ and the bond that he has created for us, between us and other peoples, is greater than any other bond that we might have with any other group or organization, or affiliation here on earth. Galatians 3 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You see, it's making it very clear that now those distinctions don't really matter in light of 
of our identity in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither male nor female. There's no slave or free. You are all in Christ. That's the defining mark of who we are. And it is greater than, it trumps all other ways we might otherwise group ourselves or identify ourselves. We might have many ways that we identify ourselves today. We might say, I'm an American, or I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, or I'm a Ger- of German descent, or I have, I'm of Greek descent, or something else. We might use all these types of associations to form our identity. And sometimes it can happen that one of these groups that we associate with doesn't mix well with another type of group. We might find it difficult to get along with another person because they're part of a different group than we are. What I want you to see is that our association with Christ trumps all of that. Remember that the Gentiles and the Jewish people had 1,000 reasons to hate each other. Culturally, they were from entirely different places. And Paul is making the argument here that if Christ has gone to such great lengths to bring these two groups together, then there is no reason for them to be divided. Our common salvation in Christ should be the most important part of our identity, and the one that is greater than all other ways that we might distinguish ourselves. I love how uh, Pastor Matt Chandler of the Village Church puts it, and you see this quote is printed here for you. He said this in a recent sermon in September, my primary identity is in Christ, and this transcends all other identity markers. Therefore, I have more in common with an Iranian national who loves Jesus Christ than an American who wants nothing to do with him. I think that's where the rubber really meets the road in that quote. I think it's absolutely true. We have more in common with an Iranian national who believes and is saved than an American who wants nothing to do with him. Our identity in Christ is greater than any other way that we might group ourselves, identify with, or any other particular way. Application number three. We have an obligation, therefore, to live out the unity that Christ has made possible. Our third and final application is that we have this obligation now to live in such a way that reflects what has already been spiritually accomplished for us. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we should live in light of this reality. So further on in the book, it says this, I therefore, this is, so Paul's presenting in Ephesians a lot of spiritual truths in the first half of the book, and then he's bringing home a lot of the application. This is how we should live in light of those truths. So he's saying all this in chapter 2. Now we can fast forward to chapter 4, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is one Lord, 
one church. There's not many churches. There's not many different types of baptisms. We all are part of the body of Christ, and that includes cultures that are vastly different than our own. And when you consider that, especially for somebody who has perhaps been able to go to a missions trip or something that's halfway across the world, you see just how much a lot of our Christianity is really American Christianity and not necessarily true Christianity. What I mean by that is that there's a lot of things that are different, maybe in another part of the world. They might read Scripture, they'll pray, they'll sing, but a lot of the other things that we take for granted here in the way that we worship, the way that we do things, are distinctly American and not necessarily tied to anything particularly in in the Scriptures. And we see that the body of Christ is much bigger than we ever possibly imagined and much more grand and incorporates a lot of different practices and a lot of different traditions and a lot of different things that are certainly very different from our own. And it says, yet there is one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Colossians 3.11, here there is no Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And you see that in Christ, none of these distinctions matter. For Christ should be the one thing that defines us. We should be unified because Christ has already unified us. So here is my challenge to you. You know, this is one of those cases where I can't spell out what it is you're supposed to do with this particular passage because it's going to differ from all of us. We don't face the challenge of being Jewish and not welcoming Gentile people into the church, okay? Or we don't face the problem of being Gentile and not feeling welcomed in and and all these kind of things. That was a problem back then. That was the fight that they fought back then. Just like meat sacrifice to idols, okay? That was a specific problem to then. So what we have to do is take that and figure out what principles we can learn from it and how to apply it today. And I'm saying to you, think in your mind, who is it that you have a hard time being unified with? Who, who is it, maybe individually or maybe a group of people, that you just, you know, you know you should get along with, but, but you don't? Or maybe a group of people or, or a person or people that, you know, I, I just find myself not trusting as much as I might trust this kind of group of people, or I have more doubts and suspicions about this kind of group of people over here, or I associate more with this type of group rather than this type of group. See, a lot of these things are behind the surface. I can't even probably identify them in you, and you probably can't identify them in me. A lot of it goes right to our hearts, and there are attitudes that exist deep down that we do very well in hiding. So my question to you tonight is, what... Groups of people do you find difficult to be unified with? Are there certain peoples that you rarely reach out to? Certain peoples that you don't give the benefit of the doubt? People that you don't normally interact with? My challenge to you tonight is to work on that unity and to specifically work on that unity with people with whom you find it most difficult. Because it's easy for us to get along with people who are like us, right? I mean, even the world does that. That doesn't make the church any different than the world around us. But if the world sees us interacting and being unified with people who are vastly different from us, that will make somebody scratch their heads. That will make somebody wonder, I wonder what is different about this community 
this church that you're describing seems different than anything else I've ever encountered. The rest of the world is divided. You guys have something different going on. How is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. It's through Christ. And it comes through training our minds to remember that in the end, this identity marker of being in Christ, being the most important thing, uh, that is what is going to change us. So search your heart. Search your mind. Search your attitudes. And say to yourself, who is it that I have a hard time getting along with? Where is this identity least demonstrated? And is this unity least demonstrated in my own life? How can I improve? How can I live out what Christ has already accomplished for me? And if we can do that, then we'll begin to honor the point and the intent of this passage. Christ has broken down that wall. In Christ, there are none of these dividers. The external things, they don't matter. But what matters is our faith and our hope that rests in Jesus Christ. May God grant unity to his church, and may we see that begin with us, the Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging word that we have before us. Lord, it is an amazing thing that you came to this earth, not only died on the cross and rose again, but you broke down that barrier that existed between peoples and brought them together as one. And we see that the church is not a building. It's not an institution, God. It's a community. A community that is to be vastly different than the world around us. And so I pray, Lord, by your spirit, by your convicting power, that you would make us unified, not just with people who are like us, but people who are very different from us, people on on our own we would never associate with. But God, through that common bond, through that common faith, may we find ways to be joined together for the common purpose of spreading the gospel, growing in faith, and reaching the world. I pray that you would begin with us, and that in this way, Lord, by doing the impossible, that we would be a light to our community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.